guest on this episode of Trailblazers is Australia's most renowned female Paralympian with nine gold and four silver medals gracing her trophy cabinet, along with a huge swag of world championship medals. She's won four Boston marathons and dominated the Ausday 10K wheelchair road race with 10 titles between 93 and 2003. She was crowned the 41st official legend of Australian sport in 2019. Today's trailblazer is Louise Savage, OAM. I got the eye of the Hello and welcome. How's life treating you in 2020? Oh, not too bad, thank you. I think it's been an interesting year for most people of, <laughs> you know, ups and downs and all over the place and sideways. But no, I think, you know, everyone's just tried to get through as best you can and I'm lucky to have been living where I, I am and other people have fared a bit worse than me, I'm sure. Yeah, I think all of us in Australia are fairly fortunate. Now, what's your current situation? What are you up to at the moment? Just working. I'm working with the New South Wales Institute of Sport and coaching. full-time position there. And I, I do a lot of work with uh, not only national team members, but also junior development guys um, all over the place. And we have the, the only wheelchair track and road program in the country. And so we run the national program out of there as well. So, yeah, fairly busy. Yeah, we're going to talk a bit more about that in, in just a moment. But I mentioned some of your accolades in the introduction. It's actually impossible to list all of them because uh, that would take up the entire <laughs> entire hour. But just tell me, where do you keep all those medals and trophies? Please tell me you've got a trophy room. No, I don't have a trophy room. Oh, come room. on. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have some in the lounge and, you know, some things on the walls that scattered around the house. And uh, my mum has some of my medals from Paralympics and I have some, so... Yeah, they kind of spread out a little bit. <laughs> uh, is that nice that you've got so many that you can share them around? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> uh, is is mum a, a mad keeper of, of mementos of your career? Does she like have scrapbooks of, of stories on you and things like that? Yeah, mum had a lot of scrapbooks and when they did the book and, and things like that, she had to get it all out and then she actually lost one of the scrapbooks and she absolutely cursed herself. She just like couldn't, oh. you know, actually fathom that she'd done it and wouldn't oh just wouldn't give up on it so I felt really bad for her but we recovered most of it yeah she's got lots of scrapbooks of all the clippings from the newspapers and things like that so it was really sweet lots of other things at home like photos and things like that and how about videos do you ever watch back footage of your great races do you get nostalgic I haven't watched a lot to be honest this year being the 20th anniversary of Sydney I've actually watched quite a few races and then with one of my athletes we did a lot of um, review and a lot of looking at different races past present of her races and my races of different people and we actually I dug out a few of mine for her to watch as well so that was really cool this year so yeah I just get to watch a couple of my races. That's nice. You get to say, and this is how it's done. <laughs> tell, tell me, do you... Back in the day. <laughs> Back in the day. Do you miss the competitive aspect of your of your career? Uh, yeah, I'm a very just slightly competitive person. So, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so, yeah, I definitely do 
the competitiveness of my sport. But, you know, I still am involved at such a high level still. So it's, it's fantastic and I get inspired, you know, every time we go overseas and uh, to a big competition where there's lots of wheelchair racing, you know, it inspires me to keep coaching and, and trying at my athletes as best as they possibly can. I, I love it. I just, I love the sport and I you definitely love the competition and watching it. How about the training though? How does the good life you've got now compared to the schedule that you've followed for so many years as a competitive athlete? Yeah, it's a little different. Um, I do try and keep active. I think if, you know, it's move it or lose it pretty much. Now, I suffer a lot from my sport, you know, and the repetitive nature of, of the sport of, you know, and how much I did do. So shoulders, shoulder health is probably one of the biggest factors in my life going forward. So um, I do go to the gym twice a week just to try and keep that in general strength and, and shoulder health because my goal in life is not to have surgery. So... <laughs> Uh, so I do keep active. Um, I ride my hand cycle still and do some rowing and a few other things just to, to stay active. It's not quite as gruelling though, so no, I don't miss it. <laughs> you, of course, made a very natural transition into coaching. Uh, I think Frank Ponter was one of your first coaches, Andrew Dawes, uh, after 96. What was the most important role your coaches played? Obviously, I think a, a coach in general can be such uh, an important person in anyone's life as an, in an athlete's life. They're, they're someone that they generally trust and look up to and take advice from and, you know, they're a confident. And so for me, my first coach, Frank Ponta, was definitely someone like that. I mean, he, he was, he'd been there and done that. So I couldn't have asked for a better person to, to show me the way to start off with. You know, he'd been to the first Paralympics in 1960 and he knew what it was all about and I had no clue. <laughs> but he, he really believed in me and showed me the way and taught me a lot about, I suppose, sportsmanship more than anything. I was a cocky little thing when I was about nine years old and uh, <laughs> thought I could, you know, win everything and beat everyone and I started to tell everyone that. So uh, he taught me a lot about sportsmanship and letting my actions, I suppose, shine through rather than, you know, sh- uh, telling everyone what I could do. So... So I think he was probably one of the biggest influences on me and getting involved in the sport and really believing in me and and knowing that I could go a long way. I learned a lot from my other coaches as well um, about how they coached and then how I wanted to be as a coach. Um, You know, the the positives and the negatives, I suppose, in, in lots of ways. And probably one of the biggest things that I took away was, and I think it's probably one of the things that I dwell on now in my coaching career is that you know how we communicate with different people and how how we get the most out of a person by how we communicate with them so it's probably one of the biggest factors in in my coaching career now so what would the athletes that you're working with now what sort of coach would they would they say you are are you tough (laughs) probably (laughs) you have to ask them Um, I think uh, you know, the person that I work cl- most closely with is, is Madison Di Rosario. So I've been working with her since she was about 14 and, and she's about to have her birthday again this month and she'll be 26, I think. So old. Uh, <laughs> so actually, no, she'll be 27. Gosh, I was giving her a year. Uh, <laughs> sure, mind so that. I think for her, um, working with her at such a young age, well, obviously she's grown up and things have changed in our relationship along the way. 
Yeah, I would say that I'm 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 tough, but also she's at the point where she knows her sport and she knows a lot of different things about it, and I want her to own it more. So I would give her a lot of choices and give her a lot of questions and want her to ask questions about what what she's doing. She's not a kid anymore. Where I go, come on, you've got to go out there and do six four hundreds, and she'll just go and do it kind of thing. So. <laughs> It's it's very different now, the the way I coach. And, yes, I think she would say I'm, I'm tough, but I also think she knows that I have her best interest at heart and know that I think I can push her to a certain limit and that's, you know, enough. And she's, she's often the one that will turn around and go, well, I want to do more, I want to do more, more, more. And I'm like, you know what, that doesn't always work. <laughs> so let's do quality than quantity. <laughs> I want her to have longevity in the sport and to be as injury-free as I possibly can make her. Yeah, for sure. Well, of course, at the moment, or you would have been preparing her for for Tokyo uh, this year. Now, with the delay in the paras for the year, what challenges has that represented for your athletes? I think like a lot of the athletes, obviously, that were working toward Tokyo this year, obviously a lot of disappointment and dismay and, you know, but then in the same respect, I've, I've tried to turn that around for our athletes and go, you know what, we never get this time at home, we never get this amount of time to be able to work on different things and to be able to, you know, look into different equipment and different training phases and to do a large block of work without interruptions, without travel, without peaking for this or, or doing a race here and there. So we try, really, really tried to turn it around to a positive. Like, you know, we've got longer to get faster and, and quicker and work on our endurance. There's so many things that we can draw on, you know, we can be better by next year and going into Tokyo. The hardest thing I think that has been is continuing with planning for things that you don't know whether they're going to happen and (laughs) and having to change all the time. I'm a serial planner. For me, it's been really hard to, I suppose, keep changing and, and doing things and then having everything go by the wayside and having to start again all the time. So we just keep planning for what we know and we work towards those goals and, and those competitions that we know that we, we can possibly do and then we'll keep going as, as much as we can. Mm. So that's probably yeah. been the hardest bit. Well, I feel your pain there. I'm the sort of person that still uses a paper diary and I've actually gone to using a pencil because there's that much oh. flux in the schedules that you just think I've got to keep erasing everything. <laughs> uh, tell me though. See, you're, a, you're a person of my heart. I have a paper diary and a pencil. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll come into the new generation eventually. But uh, speaking of the new generation, what are your expectations for this, this current uh, wheelchair racing team and particularly for Maddie? Yeah, I think it's very exciting. We have a a really good team. Like our our last World Championships, we did really, really well. The the wheelchair track and road team did Mm. excellent. And yeah, I think we're we're growing in numbers and I'm hoping to have a few more through and obviously looking towards the next Paralympics after that. Definitely, I think we, we will be quite successful in Tokyo all going to plan. Madison, yeah, I think she's just coming into her peak. She's been on the marathon circuit for a little while now and, and getting stronger and stronger at, at road races and then, of course, on the track. And for her, she really needs to be physically uh, able to do things before she can really mentally believe she can do it. It's a work in progress, but I think she she's definitely got the potential in her to medal, to not be on one of those pointy bits of the uh, dais. <laughs> don't want to say it out loud. Yeah, don't don't put the mockers on her. Uh, well, we can't no. wait to, to see her, uh, her to see her on the track. Tell us, you've mentioned the athletes have that, that time at home and that time to to relax and and perhaps not have to be on the road. That means so do you. What do you get up to outside of sport? How do you chill out? 
Yeah, good question. I'm I'm pretty much engulfed in it, but uh, but it, I think um, you know I have a lot of friends who are in coaches as well, and a lot of people that in my world travel a lot, just like I do. For me, this year has been quite nice to have a lot of my friends at home and actually catching up with them more often. And we've been going for for long walks with their animals and things like that. So it's been really different and catching up with people that you don't normally see and kind of within your own kind of bubble, if so to speak. I think the hardest thing has been probably not being able to see family. I don't really have any family where I live. They're all, uh, you know, playing triple A. So that's been probably one of the harder things because, yeah, I haven't been able to do that and visit, you know, even my mum or anything like that. I haven't seen her for over a year now. Well, the days of full-time training might be behind her, but that punishing schedule brought Louise Savage huge success on the track. Next up, we talk about all those gold medals. Stay with us on Trailblazers. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. 200 to go. Savage is strong, but the inside is Hernandez of Mexico. Savage trying to get up level her, though, as they enter the straight. Out wide of Basira, losing a bit of ground on the turn. And tucked in behind them, Great Britain. And also coming through is Shishida of Japan. Sashida of Japan, and here comes Savage with a mighty run. Louise has got up to take the lead. Sashida of Japan, Savage is going to win it. Louise is coming away, and she comes home to win. Well, that audio was from the Sydney Olympics, an enormous crowd in the house for the 800-metre demonstration event. And the Paralympics were still a couple of weeks away. Louise, what do you recall of that experience? Well, I recall it very vividly. <laughs> yeah, it was an amazing night. I was actually a bit crook on the night. I had a bit of a cold and couldn't breathe that well. But, you <laughs> well, know, no. we had to... <laughs> No, I was like, and I didn't want to let my competitors know that either. <laughs> but no, I just uh, for me it was just keeping it all in in check, and then of you know trying to come home with two hundred meters to go. I wanted to be clear, and you know I, I just it was an amazing night. One hundred and ten thousand people, and I came around that last bend, and the crowd just got up out of their seats, and we were in louder than they were before. I was the only Aussie in the race, and of course I ended up coming home and winning, and wish I'd done a couple of victory laps now. <laughs> It was phenomenal. It was just amazing. Like, you couldn't have asked for anything better. I think it's any athlete's dream to have, you know, a home games in, in your prime of your career. So having my medal presented to me later that night and having 110,000 people sing the anthem was kind of special too. Yeah, it was phenomenal and something obviously I'll never, ever forget. Yeah, and as you mentioned, it was a great warm-up for that, that home paras. I just, want, I just want to go back to before you were famous. Uh, you first started appearing in, in newspaper stories, uh, but it was really in the human interest section, wasn't it? They were the nice stories and, you know, encouraging and, and lovely. But what happened for the leap into your rightful spot in the sports pages where you're meant to be? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, when I first started getting, I suppose, a little bit of attention in my hometown, yeah, I was in the human interest pages and wasn't really seen as an athlete. It was just like, oh, isn't this great? She's having a go kind of thing. And yeah, not really seeing me as an athlete or the amount of work and effort that I put into my sport. So I, I suppose, you know, the first Paralympics I went to in 92, we got we got some media coverage and it was the first time the Paralympics were covered on, on TV um, in Australia, which was phenomenal. And it's kind of grown since then. And of course, the games in Sydney, I think, were just phenomenal. I mean, in my opinion, they were, I suppose, one of the groundbreakers and it was how the Paralympics should be going forward. And I was so proud to be Australian that, you know, we did it here. I remember, you know, being in the village and 
international athletes coming up to me and, you know, saying, this is amazing, absolutely amazing. We're on the front page, the back page of the paper. We're on we're the headline, you know, story on the news. And it's just unheard of for, for athletes with disabilities to be recognised in that way. And you know, the crowds were just huge. You know, you couldn't mm. get into a basketball game. You couldn't get into the rugby. You could always get into athletics. But, uh, hey, it's just because it's was, a really big stadium, all right? <laughs> that's right, yes. <laughs> so for me, that was just made me so happy and so proud that we, you know, we gave the respect to the athletes and, and everyone just embraces, you know, so much from, you know, the media to the general public. And mm. it was such an amazing atmosphere. So I suppose it came a long way from, you know, being on the human interest pages of the paper and not really being seen in the sports pages, as you said, to, to then being the front and back page and the main story, which was phenomenal. And it just goes to show, you know, time has, it has changed where, you know, all athletes, regardless whether they have a disability or not, are in the sports pages where they deserve to be. With the Paralympics, and I've worked on a couple, and I recall a lot of discussion and a lot of training that we were given as media about the classifications that define the eligibility for each event. They're sometimes confusing for those who don't understand the minutiae mm-hmm. of it. Do you think it's the best possible system? Does it ensure the most competitive equality? There's a can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's very, it's very difficult. Uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing for, any, for the International Paralympic Committee to achieve and um, I give them credit for trying to achieve that. Um, it's very subjective and it's it's difficult to make everyone on an even playing field so that's why they do have classifications. The different sports I think make it very hard sometimes. Uh, even in my particular sport you can be in a classification and you could be at the top of it or at the bottom of it meaning you know you have the least disability but you know you can you can be at the top of that classification and then be someone else in the same classification and they have more disability than you. So it's very a very hard thing to do within the sports and the, and the classification. So, yeah, sometimes I feel like it is, it's not done right and other times, I, you know, I don't have a solution. So it's a really hard question for me to answer. Well, you went to four Paralympic Games, 92, 96, 2000, 2004. So we've gone from Barcelona to Atlanta to Sydney and Athens. You've given such a wonderful, warm recollection of Sydney. Was that your favourite? I'm totally biased and I'll say yes. (laughs) (laughs) It was was my favourite for a number of reasons. For the the one where I said that, you know, I was very, obviously very honoured to to be Australian because we did such a bloody good job. But but also it was, you know, I, I, I was very successful in my individual event. But also I think it was the first time, you know, my family and friends could come and see what why I was training so much. What what was I doing? You know, why was I doing all this, you know, what what it really meant. And they, they, just, they got it to after that, you know, why I was missing out on so many different things because this is what I was doing, you know. So... It was fantastic for them to come along and experience it as well. And, you know, I'm, you know, just so grateful that we had a Games here in my career. So, yeah, I'm going to be biased. (laughs) I'm guessing lighting the cauldron at the Sydney Powers probably put the icing on the cake. Yeah, that was pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Understatement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like I remember four years earlier in Atlanta and a friend of mine was one of the last torchbearers there and I thought, oh, wouldn't that be amazing to do in Sydney? <laughs> and then we got told about oh, two or three days prior to the opening ceremony of the Paralympics that there were six of us that were the last torchbearers and none of us actually asked who was lighting the thing. And it wasn't until, you know, one of us said, oh, you know, who is actually lighting it? And they told, told us that it was me. And, yeah, 
it was fantastic and I was sworn to secrecy. I didn't even tell my family. So it was a surprise for them on the night as they were up in the stands. It was, yeah, it was fantastic just to have that huge honour. Of course, your first one was 92. That was uh, back in Barcelona, your first Paralympics. Uh, do you remember much about it? Could you take it all in or was it just too exciting? Yeah, it was, it was very full on. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Who knew I'd be <laughs> going to every Paralympics since then? Um, as a coach or an athlete, uh, yeah, it was it was fantastic. I think you know I had a bit of a taste two years earlier in my first World Championships, but the Paralympics was just another level, mm. and you know to see what my sport was all about, and and just yeah, just to experience it, and I did really well at those games, and you know I was new kid on the block, so to speak, and it was just brilliant. I remember coming home from it, and everyone was so happy and proud, and. We had ticker tape parades and all those kind of things, mm. and I just I just had no idea what literally I was getting myself into. I wasn't one of those kids that, you know, dreamt of representing Australia or knew what the Paralympics were, were even were when I was growing up. I had no idea, so it was fantastic, just you know, phenomenal to be part of that. Absolutely, and in fact, I remember in '92, uh, just the flip side of that, I, as I recall, funding was an issue for the Australian Paralympic Federation. Was there actually a chance at one point that you might not have been able to go? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stories that have come out since that, you know, funding for a, a number of the games actually has been in doubt. But yeah, 92 was definitely one of those. They weren't sure whether we could fund it to go. And, you know, I, and I do remember fundraising for a lot of different things in my time and, you know, different uniforms, airfares, things like that, especially for world champs. And I think 92 was the first time they actually covered the, the Paralympic team. So it was a, a hit and miss, but I, I think, you know, if it push come to shove, I think we would have found the money for us to go, definitely, and we did in the end, so it was it was great. But, yeah, it's an interesting time throughout our history of, of what's happened in the past, and not only the Summer Games, but the Winter Games too. Well, you certainly in that year paid back the faith of the sponsors coming home with three golds and a silver uh, from Barcelona. <laughs> you were already Australia's premier female wheelchair racer. Uh, that sort of, I guess, uh, perhaps in the public eye, announced you on the scene. Did you already have some good rivalries going? I mean, you've developed some cracking ones over the years. I remember the Canadian Chantal Petitclerc saying, I dream more about Louise than I do my boyfriend. That's a compliment, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty weird, actually. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I suppose it encompasses you, doesn't it? Like just, you know, I mean, I, I remember myself, you know, dreaming of racing and to the point where I couldn't sleep. So I do understand what she means, <laughs> you know, and how to beat certain people and, and what kind of training I'm doing. And, you know, the, the thought of every time that you got to training sessions and it was cold and wet and it was a stupid hour and you were tired and just thinking, you know what, they're training somewhere else in the world. So I've got to get out there and give my best. So I, I can't miss an opportunity. So I suppose for me, yeah, it was definitely, yeah, just, once you get to the top, I think a lot of athletes will say this, you know, it's even harder to stay there. Yeah, you know, I, I dreamt of racing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Are you still in touch with your former competitors? I have seen them now and again, yes, definitely. Um, I've seen Chantal a couple of times at different games and she's held some different positions as myself as a coach. I have seen them and um, Jean Driscoll was another that I hadn't seen for many, many years when I was in the States. Oh, quite a few years ago now I caught up with her and we were both really hesitant and didn't know what was going to happen but we had the great we had a great time together reminiscing but also just you know about racing and a bunch of different things 
That's brilliant. How did you know when it was time to retire from that level? Yeah, unfortunately, um, my body kind of told me in the end. The beginning of the year in, in 2004, I didn't know whether I'd actually make the Paralympic. I think there's just the repetitive nature of my sport. I have, and the, the position that we're in, I had a lot of impingements throughout my neck and that made uh, you know you get pins and needles in your hands and things like that and they go numb and you kind of shake them around and they come back to life well that wasn't happening for me they would pretty much stay numb and it felt like daggers were going down my forearms it was just horrible and it was just so bad that you know I was instructed that I really had to make a a sensible decision in my life to (laughs) retire because you know I had to actually rely on my upper body for the rest of my life so It was through injury, basically, that I knew that I I couldn't keep going the way I was. Going out as flag bearer, what a way to go. Yeah, that was really nice that they gave me that honour in Athens. The only disappointing part was we didn't get to go all the way around the track and my family (laughs) were on the other side. Oh, no. they kind of missed it. My mum and my sister came to, to Athens to see me at my last games, which was really, really nice. And yeah, I got to have my birthday with them in Greece. And yeah, they saw me at my last competition ever, which was fantastic. Well, everyone knows Louise Savage had extraordinary success on the track, but could she have starred in the pool instead? After the break, we chat about where it all began. Stay with us on Trailblazers. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. chatting with the legendary Louise Savage, now a resident of Sydney, of course. However, Louise, mum came from Leicestershire, dad from the Seychelles. How did they come to be in Australia? Well, mum and dad met in Perth at a dance, apparently, (laughs) which sounds really funny. Got married and had my sister and I, and yeah, it all went from there. So yeah, they met up in Perth from different, very different, both upbringings and nationalities. Well, you were born in Perth. Do you still consider yourself Western Australian? Oh, who knows? I, I, I think I'm just Australian. I think I've lived in, in the East Coast now longer than I've been on the West Coast, but obviously grew up in WA and, and started my career there and, and grew up, you know, as life and everything there. So I moved over to the East Coast to be closer to a few different things and, and the action. Been in Sydney now for a very long time, over 20 years. Well, if people look you up on the internet, they'll know that your full name is Alex Louise. Why aren't you called Alex? Yeah, I'm, I'm A-L-I-X. It's not even Alexandria. Um, it's actually my grandmother's name, and it's it's French uh, for Alice, actually. So it's Alice in English, apparently. It's it's a family thing. So my full name, as you said, is Alex Louise Savage. I get called Louise. Uh, my, my sister's name is Joyce Ann Savage, and she gets called Anne. My father's actually got four... Four names, so he was Charles France Morris Savage, and he got called Morris. So it's a, it's a family thing. It can be very confusing and very frustrating a lot of the time. It's caused us a lot of grief. I think growing up more than anything. <laughs> it's always on the school rolls. But roles. yeah, it's not my choice. Uh, now, Louise, you were born with a condition called myelomeningocele. I think I've pronounced that correctly. Um, can you? Uh, no, not even close. Maybe not. <laughs> you, you can re-say. And can you explain what it is in in lay terms? Yeah, well, so I've been diagnosed with a couple of different things and a lot of it, I don't actually have a a proper, let's say, name, so to speak, that combines everything, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. A few different things. When I was born, my spinal cord wasn't formed properly. It's on the inside. So I I basically, um, uh, if you look at spinal cord, I'm T11, T12, incomplete. So I have some movement in my legs, but not can't bend weight or anything like that. So it, it's kind of a few, a combination of a few different things that I was born with that yeah, don't combine into one 
category, I could say. Well, well it meant um, you were a frequent visitor in the hospital ward, right? Did, did I read correctly 21 surgeries before your age hit double figures? Oh, probably, yes. <laughs> My sister used to keep count. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of surgeries when I was younger. Um, and I suppose the Princess Margaret Hospital, which is no longer there now in WA, was probably my second home. So backwards and forwards for lots of different things going on with my hips and legs and back. And yeah, so I had a lot of surgeries to try and correct and and give me the best life possible. Your parents were determined that sport was going to be a part of your life as it's an eight part for for most Aussie kids. Uh, Swimming was the first experience, is that right? Yeah, I, I was I went to swim lessons with other children with disabilities when I was about three and this was, I suppose, my first taste of anything. There was a lot of freedom in the pool and you didn't have anything stopping you. Mm. I loved it. It was great. Obviously, learning a, a lifelong skill that I suppose most people should learn. But not, not only that, but yeah, I had a lot of fun and yeah, it was my first taste of any kind of sport and uh, I joined swim club with my older sister but it wasn't actually till I was about eight I got introduced to wheelchair sports and then my life was turned upside down. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't keep me away. <laughs> I can imagine, especially with that competitive nature. But how challenging was it before then to, to have just basic participation in regular school sport? Did you have any other kids to share that experience with at the time? I was the only child with a disability at my primary school and they tried to include me as much as they could. But, you know, like you said, it wasn't quite the same. I couldn't compete on an equal level. So it was a little frustrating not to be able to do that being you know the nature that I had (laughs) so yeah when I did find wheelchair sports and there were so many other children with similar disabilities to myself it was heaven on earth for me and I just wanted to learn I want to get faster and quicker and better and be able to be you know the best at whatever they threw in front of me so I loved it absolutely loved it I think you did quite well at that faster, stronger, better thing. Um, Maybe. <laughs> t- t- tell us, though, I-, I know that you and I have, have done some work together with uh, wheelchair sports over here in New South Wales and uh, the delight on these kids' faces when they get into it through the come and play or come and try days. Wheelchair technology, though, has come such a long way. What was your first race chair like? Oh, my first race chair was very heavy. Uh, <laughs> It was made of, I think, chromoly steel and, yeah, it had four wheels and the front wheels had no steering and they got speed wobble. <laughs> but I thought it was cool. <laughs> so it was great. And then I, you know, went through the system and it's just like the kids do now of borrowing race chairs and, and borrowing sports chairs until I could get my own. And, you know, obviously as a kid you grow. So, you know, it was it was probably more than anything going through that saved you a lot of money the the sports associations did a great job in, in helping me further my career and and you know providing me with chairs and the opportunity to participate and some coaches along the way too oh yeah it was great well you took to competitive racing with absolute aplomb first international comp in Assen in holland gold in the 100 meters and a new world record at what were you 17 years old yes i outdone myself I didn't really know what to expect like I said it was my first international I was like the youngest person I think there and the youngest in our team competing and got on that start line and in the final and off I went I actually won the 202 but I got disqualified (laughs) speed wobbling out of your lane (laughs) I did come out of my lane I yeah took a shortcut apparently (laughs) outside of uh, Paralympic and World Championship events you moved on to marathons. That's a whole new level of pain. Why? Yeah, you've got to be a bit mad, I think, to do marathons. 
Yeah, I, I suppose for me, I'd done a lot of the, the track scene and I wanted to challenge myself a bit more. So that was going into road races. So anything from 10K up to marathon distance. And yeah, I had to change everything from obviously my training to my eating to sleeping and, and everything that I did to try and conquer that. And it took me quite a number of years to build up the endurance to be able to, to be good at that as well. But it was, you know, another challenge in, within my sport, so why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, you did it quite well again. The Boston Marathon and US racer Jean Driscoll, you mentioned catching up with her a little while ago. She dominated that event before you came along. That must have been pretty satisfying to unseat the Queen. Yeah, she, uh, every time Jean Driscoll had entered the race, she had won it. And so, you know, here I come along. <laughs> it took me five years to try and beat her in the Boston Marathon, and finally I did, and the first time I beat Jean, she actually crashed on some train tracks and tram tracks, sorry, and, and everyone kind of said, oh, well, you're only one because Jean crashed. And I was like, all right, so I'll do this again. <laughs> it took a long time and we had a fantastic rivalry and to the point where, the, you know, the TV crews started following us more than the runners because <laughs> it was just so exciting. And for Jean to try and capture her eighth win, no one had ever won eight Boston marathons and I denied her three years in a row. So... She finally got it. Uh, but, yeah, it was a, such a great rivalry and it was fantastic to go back every year um, to do Boston and it was just one of the most prized races on the circuit and, of course, I wanted to win it. So, yeah, well, fantastic. Went... I remember pushing the hills just to prepare for that. It was just phenomenal. I can only imagine. And, and you didn't stop at just Boston, of course, Los Angeles, Honolulu, Berlin. Uh, you've been all over the world. It's a, the marathon itinerary put you even further afield. Where was your favourite place to compete? Was it actually the event of the Boston Marathon? Uh, Marathon-wise, yeah, probably Boston, um, just because it was a fantastic city and, yeah, it was it was really a fantastic atmosphere and, yeah, everyone wanted to win Boston. So it was it was great. I mean, going also going to Honolulu to do the, the marathon, that marathon was kind of mm. special too. It was fantastic. You started in the dark and you finished at sunrise and then you went back to the hotel, had a nap and came back for the for presentations and flew home that night. It was just insane. It was it was a, a fantastic race as well. But probably for, for the track races, my favourite would have to be Switzerland. We tend to go there almost every year now, you know, as a coach as well with, with our crew. But Switzerland just had so many memories, fast tracks, great competitors. One of my best mates lives there. She was my competitor and I still get to catch up with her and, and we get to go back every year and have fantastic racing there. So Switzerland would have to be my second favourite country. I'm just thinking a lot of mountains. That's all I'm thinking about Switzerland. <laughs> Beautiful, yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to push them though. So uh, we no. probably have a different perspective. <laughs> um, how different, tell me, is the accessibility between countries? Uh, I mean, where does Australia sit on that list? Are there some that just outdo themselves? Uh, we're not too bad, I'd say. I mean, depending on where you go, like Europe is probably one of the harder ones because it's of the age of the place, you know, different places. Mm. You know, cobblestones are not my friends. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, just depending where you go, some places are really hard to get around. Um, I remember the first time I went to the US and pretty much, you know, every restaurant, every place that I went to had, you know, access and an accessible bathroom and things like that because their laws are just so strict mm. that they have to. So that was kind of interesting. So they, they're probably one of the leaders in terms of access and things like that. But yeah, Australia is not too bad. We're getting better and better. Um, I think we can always get better though. 
I'd, I'd like to think that, you know, we're not such an afterthought. I think access for all, not necessarily the physical access that I require, but access for everyone in, you know, most community places and things where everyone has the right to, to have access to should, shouldn't be an afterthought. It should be just in the planning and, and something that everyone thinks of now. So it's, it's getting better and better. But as I said, we can always get better. <laughs> Certainly. And people like yourself and, and Kurt Fernley and your, your fellow star athletes have, have really raised the, the visibility of those issues. Issues, And when I mention Kurt in particular, uh, you've both been such inspiring figures. Did you ever compare notes? Uh, not a lot. Kind of Kurt, I remember, you know, he came, came on the scene, you know, in 2000 and he did so well and then he just went on to smash it and it, he just had an amazing career and yeah, I'm just yeah. He just did so well, and I have so much uh, admiration for what he's done and and what he's done since as well. Um, and the figure that he's become, and especially for the kids now, um, he's so visible, which is fantastic for them. You know, they think about the sport, they think about Kurt and and what he's done, and he's he's been so generous with his time as well in promoting the sport and being there for the kids coming through, which has been fantastic. But um, probably didn't compare notes too much you know I was I was honoured to be there for his last Australian representative you know in Commonwealth Games and, and what he did there was phenomenal in the marathon more than anything so yeah it's 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 great to know that you know when they think about our sport they think of Kurt they think of myself they think of Madison now and it's because you know as you said we're just so much more visible now and I just just so proud that you know I've had a small part in in promotion promoting those athletes and and making it easier for them to to gain sponsors and to be recognised for who they are as athletes and 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 you know the achievements that they have. Well, Louise Savage made such a mark in her sport. She is now in pretty much every Hall of Fame that exists. Next up, we talk autobiographies <laughs> and awards nights. You're listening to Trailblazers. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Louise Savage is with us. She spent most of her years in athletic gear, but she must have known a thing or two about getting doled up. Louise, I'm going to rattle off a few here. Four times Paralympian of the Year, AIS Athlete of the Year, AIS Best of the Best, Female Athlete of the Year, Sport Australia Awards, World Sports Person of the Year with a Disability at the Laureus Sports Awards, Australian Sports Medal, Launch of the Louise Savage Pathway, Inducted into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame, the Australia Paralympic Hall of Fame, International Paralympic Hall of Fame, Sydney Olympic Path Athletic Centre, Path of Champions, elevated to legendary status in the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. How many formal outfits do you own? <laughs> a couple. <laughs> <laughs> it gets it gets hard sometimes going to sports uh, awards night. <laughs> it's great. I mean, when you finish your career, you don't really think about what's next or being recognised the way I have been. So it's been amazing. And, and last year probably capped it more than anything with the you know, being elevated to the legend status in the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. I'm truly honoured to be recognised at that level with other athletes within my home country. It's just phenomenal. You wrote your autobiography in 2002, Louise Savage, My Story. I think there should be an updated version. You need to include all these accolades that came afterwards. Is there another chapter? I've been told that a couple of times, but (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) What was the process like? For Ian Heads. I don't think Ian Heads would be up for it either. He he co-wrote with me. (laughs) 
Of course, many years before that elevation to the legendary status in the Sport Australia Hall of Fame, you had the Medal of the Order of Australia awarded for your feats. Uh, Was that another highlight or was it something that you just took in your stride at that point in your career? Yeah, I think there's just been lots of different things, I suppose, that have meant so much and you just don't think that it can be topped sometimes and then it does (laughs) and you just think, oh, wow. That's insane. There's so many things. I mean, I remember the Australian Paralympic Hall of Fame and I was inaugural with that and that was just amazing as well. And then to go to the International Paralympic Committee Hall of Fame in in 2012 and my mum came and everything and it was just just another moment where you just think, wow, this is being recognised at such a high level. It's hard to think that you can ever top it. I don't think I can ever top anything now. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that the topping now will be to see my athletes get to height and that's what I strive for now. You now give young athletes a role model to follow, an idol to emulate. Who are yours? Role models now, I suppose, are other coaches and other people that I want to emulate and to be successful. My goal, my coaching goal is to coach a, a Paralympic gold medalist. And you know, I've coached a world record holder and a, and a world champion, but not a Paralympic gold medalist. So um, let's hope that happens soon. <laughs> <laughs> the people that I looked up to are a lot of other coaches and a lot of other people within my sporting world and environment that you know I, I draw so much from other people and how they present themselves and how they get along in life. It's just, yeah, I have such an amazing environment in which I work. Tell me, what are the logistics involved with uh, travelling with a Paralympic team? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty horrendous. <laughs> I bet it, it can be. It... <laughs> yeah. Um, well, normally going into a Paralympic Games, you'll get all the different sports coming in at different times and normally. And so the different sports, we don't all, all travel together. But often in the last few games, we've had a charter flight coming home. Mm. And if you can imagine how long it takes to put us all on the plane mm. and get us all off, it's just horrendous. And the amount of gear, the amount of chairs and equipment that we have needing to take over with us and to be protected is just a nightmare. So, you know, hats off to the Paralympic Committee for uh, Paralympics Australia for getting us there and and back safely and the logistics is just insane. Uh, You, of course, uh, have been involved in lobbying for disability rights as well. I particularly recall a campaign with the airlines. Were you able to affect change in those policies, I think, that determined that uh, anyone in a wheelchair had to be accompanied by a carer? I mean, I've been to events where you've rocked up after taking a ferry and pushing pretty much the length of the CBD to get to the venue. Uh, How frustrating is that perception that you would need assistance? Yeah, there's been a number of different things throughout the years and also I know Kurt's done the same as Mm. well, lobbying the different airlines for different rights. And, you know, I can tell you now, I'm always up for a a fight with an airline every time I go to the airport. It's so inconsistent and it's inconsistent within airlines as well. So different airlines have different policies with regards to their carriage of people with disabilities and their equipment. So, you know, certain airlines that I would never fly because of their their um, policies. So things have changed a lot. But, you know, the fact that um, I do remember taking an airline to um, discri- anti-discrimination because, yes, they did require me to to take a carer with me and, you know, I could fly all the way around the world, but I couldn't fly domestically within Australia to uh, a regional community because I needed a carer. It is quite phenomenal the way different things work for different airlines. But, yeah, I'm, I'm ready for to fight anybody. I can tell you that now when it comes to the airlines. <laughs> Absolutely. Louise, you've achieved 
so much. When you look back at your career, and it's certainly not over yet because you're in a whole different sphere now with your coaching, when you look back, what legacy do you want to think you've left? I suppose more than anything to highlight people with disabilities in general. You know, obviously I've done it through sport to show that people are people regardless and everyone deserves the the right to be respected and to be seen as a person to be you know involved in the community to have the right to do anything I, I feel like I, I can do anything pretty much within you know within my abilities and I shouldn't be shunned because of the fact that I simply use a wheelchair to get around I get very frustrated with people's attitudes more than anything so I think my legacy would just to be seen as a person and and not judged by the way I look and that that goes for everyone though you know everyone has a, something a little bit different and if you're you know people stare and people make fun of, of of you and it's just you know people are people I don't really care what you look or how you speak it's just you know I want to take you for who you are so I, I'd, I'd love that to be a legacy that people see people with disabilities and just think oh yeah it's nothing out of the norm just a little different. Louise Savage, you've had a tremendous impact on sport in this country and continue to do so with your tutelage and your mentoring of Generation Next. We wish you all the best for the future and thank you for being this week's trailblazer. Hi, thank you very much for having me and the consistent and support is just phenomenal. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much.